Father, thank you for your word, which has been given to us. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us through it and through your son. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear and know who you are and know how you work in our lives and know your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. If a jeweler were to cast a ring out of gold or some fine metal, there are two things at least that would bring him honour in the town as he would go to make this. Those two things might be the quality of the metal that he was using and the design of the ring that he created out of that fine quality metal. Of course, to create a ring out of a fine quality metal, you have to purify it so that it's fit for his purpose. And then having purified that metal, you fashion it into whatever kind of vessel or artifact that you're making. And then for a fine quality piece of work, he would be praised uh, in the town that he had made it. And in the same way, God is glorified by his people when they themselves are purified, set, ready to be used as a people for a purpose that he has placed before them. As we know, though, the purification of metal takes very high temperatures. And the same is with us. As the Lord purifies us, he often will take us through very difficult affliction that he would sanctify us and set us apart for his purposes. And so today we look at three things. How the Lord uses affliction to sanctify us how he uses his sanctified people for good works and how he is sovereign over all of this to bring himself glory in his people and in the works that he accomplishes through them. So firstly, the Lord uses affliction to sanctify us. We're going to talk about sanctification a lot, I think, today. So let me give a definition that we can all stand on so we're all thinking about the same thing. Um, and I would define sanctification um, as the action of making or declaring something as holy, causing it to be set apart for God's purposes, freeing it from sin and making it proper for use for the Lord. Now, in the wilderness where we are today, the Israelites have been wandering now for 40 years since they left Egypt, 38 years since they stood at the gate of the promised land and then rebelled and walked away from the Lord. They said, oh, look at these giants that we are afraid of. How could we ever go in there? The Lord just led us out there to kill us, which is, of course, wrong because we've seen last week how the Lord, even with giants in the land, took them out so that other nations could go in and dwell in that land. And then, because of their rebellion, the Lord sends them out into the wilderness so that that generation of men who did not believe and who rebelled against the Lord would die. In our passage today, we finally reach this point. After 38 years of wandering in the desert, the evil generation has finally died. And so, true to his word, he says, verse 13, Now rise up and go over the brook Hazaret. It says, so we went over the brooks of red and the time from our leaving, 38 years, until all the men of war had perished from the camp. It says, 15, for indeed, 
the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Now notice here that the years in the wilderness were very intentional. Very intentional. The Lord had intended these years to sanctify his people because it was going to take 38 years for all the men of war to die. Some may think that, well, they were already in the wilderness and then they rebelled. They were out in the wilderness walking up to the promised land. But that's not quite right. We don't see judgment in the wilderness and then there's a rebellion and and then there's a decree that they're all going to die. Far from it. The Lord had actually intended that they would be in the promised land 40 years ago. But it was their rebellion which kept them from that. They were walking up. I've heard it said, oh, how foolish are the Israelites. An 11 days journey took them 40 years. Of course, that is not true, right? Because it did take them 11 days to get to the promised land. And then 40 years in the wilderness, 38 years in the wilderness until all the men who did not believe the Lord were sanctified from the nation. That's fulfilling the words that the Lord had spoken to them in Deuteronomy chapter 1, where it says, The Lord heard your words and was angered. He swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. As for you, He goes on, turn, journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. He sends them out into the wilderness for this intentional time of sanctification to remove these evil, unbelieving generation from the camp so that what would be left was a people ready to follow him in obedience. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. From James chapter 1. The testing of our faith is equated with these trials that we're going in. Right, The trials that would come in are intentional testing of our faith that lead to what? Not some pointless or some kind of evil, ha, I made you in a trial, but through this trial, the Lord is testing our faith, producing steadfastness, bringing us to perfection that we would lack nothing. As we see in the Israelites, what was left after the people were purified of the unbelieving generation? a steadfast nation who would then go and follow the Lord. Though this wasn't quite easy, it took 38 years, of course. 38 years wandering, waiting, 38 years of trials, 38 years of depending on God daily for the manna to come down from heaven, which they could not control. And we get impatient after waiting days or weeks for the Lord to answer our prayers. Um, If you've known me for a few years, you'll know that I went through a season of several years of very intense anxiety, panic attacks regularly. And over that time, I spent hours and hours and hours on my knees begging the Lord to free me from that season, 
take me out of it, Lord. I am done. I am just finished. Please, I don't want to suffer like this anymore. And for a long time, that prayer was not answered. But for a long time, I still was not in this place of understanding the security that I have in the Lord, of fully trusting who he is. And so at the end of that season, now about almost two years ago, when he brought me out of this regular terrible time of severe anxiety and panic attacks, he left me in a place, brought me to a place where I had such trust that I haven't had a panic attack since. Because he finally taught me through that season that you can trust me, that I've got you safe, that you will not be humiliated because I have declared you justified and righteous in Christ. I'm keeping you safe until that final day when we dwell with one another forever. It took me several years of trial in that until I learned that. And if I had not gone through that affliction, I don't think that I would know that today. You see, the Lord is not primarily concerned with the length of our trial, but with what he's doing for us and to us in the trial. For me, that was sanctifying and building my faith so that I would be free to follow him and have great peace. I'm so grateful, as hard as it was, that he did that. It says in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, Doing good could be calling out to God in prayer again and again and again. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. The Lord uses his sanctified people for good works that he has prepared. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2. It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And for the Israelites, what was, what was this good work that the Lord had prepared before them? Was it not to go in and inherit the, the promised land? Was it not to be a people who went in after many, many years since the promises given to Abraham, all throughout Genesis and in through Exodus, and now finally they're here? This good work of entering and living and dwelling in the land of milk and honey where the Lord would provide and dwell with his people there. Yet, could that happen when there was this generation of people who did not believe and would not follow and would rebel against the Lord? It could not happen. The Lord said, you will not enter this land to the man who had rebelled. Which is why the sanctification was required before the purpose the Lord had set before them could actually be received and stepped into. It says in verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 2, As soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. As soon as the sanctification was finished, the Lord brought them into a purpose that he had prepared beforehand that they should receive and walk into through their sanctification. I think that we see this often 
in the Lord preparing and equipping us through times of trial for new purposes. Um, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where I think we see a very clear example of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The Lord sees us, he knows us in our affliction, and he comforts us so that we are able to comfort others. Now, if the Lord has prepared good works for us beforehand, then the comforting of others, we assume and believe and trust that that is a good work that the Lord prepared for us. And it says that these good works were prepared for us when we were created in Christ Jesus. So that means before the affliction, before the Lord has given his comfort to us, he has already prepared in our future good works for us to step into, such as the comforting of others. But if this verse says, which it does, that we are to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God, but we haven't entered the affliction to receive that comfort from God to give to someone else, then that means that somewhere between where I am now and the good purpose, the good work the Lord has prepared for me, there will be an affliction where the Lord will teach me and give me comfort so that then I can step into that good work that he has given and bless and minister to that person with the comfort I first received myself. Whether the Lord gives an affliction purposely so that we can go into that purpose or whether he sovereignly works over it knowing we first received the affliction and now we're ready and prepared to walk into it, I don't think we need to make that distinction. I think the answer is both. The Lord does sovereignly work over our affliction. He does lead us through trials like we saw in the wilderness so that we are sanctified and ready for a purpose that he has prepared for us, which gives us great trust and means we can take heart during our trials, knowing not only is the Lord going to comfort us and be with us and sustain us, but he's also preparing us for ways that we can continue to minister to others. We can continue to declare his glory and shine for him among the nations with the comfort that he gives us, with the purposes and the sanctification that he's done within us. For the Israelites, I think one of these sanctifying um, purposes that the Lord accomplished in them through their time in the wilderness was teaching them obedience. Of course, you remember that before they went into the wilderness, they rebelled. It says, a good land the Lord is giving us. This is verse 25 of Deuteronomy 1, verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. This is the opposite of obedience. But contrast what we've seen last week and this week in Deuteronomy chapter 2. The Lord said, go up past Moab, but don't attack Moab. The Lord said, go up past Esau, but don't attack Esau. The Lord said, go up past the Ammonites, but don't attack the Ammonites. 
Now the Lord says, go up to King Sihon and take the land. And at the end of chapter 2, it says, the Lord gave all into our hands from King Sihon. And it says, verse 37, only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. The Israelites were now a nation who obeyed the Lord, whether the Lord said, do not go into the nations to take their land or go to the nations to take their land. In both situations, the Lord taught the Israelites to become a nation who would obey him. And they were. Praise God. No longer are they a nation who are rebelling against him. Of course, we know that they, they will. No, no one remains perfect and we won't be until we meet Christ face to face on that final day. But he used their affliction, he used their suffering to teach them obedience. And the Lord does the same for us. He teaches us to obey him. He teaches us his character. He teaches us that we can trust him and know him in our affliction. Perhaps the greatest example that we have of this is Christ. He's our Lord. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, it says, Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. What was it that he was obedient unto? And what suffering is this talking about? Philippians 2 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The suffering that our Lord Jesus took for us in our place, the wrath of God for all of our sin taken on himself so that he could take the punishment that we could be set free because he died in our place. What suffering to experience death and the absolute agony and torture that he received before he went to the cross. Well, praise God that we had someone to do that on our behalf. And that he would be obedient to the Lord's purposes to do that right until he died. And of course, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, giving us life as well. And we're thankful for that. Remember that passage from James that, that we heard earlier. It says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, having and lacking nothing. From the trials, right? And we see that Jesus learned from what he suffered and being made perfect. This is an example exactly of what we see in James, where the trial leads to steadfastness, leads to being made perfect and lacking nothing. Jesus suffered, learned obedience, was made and was perfect and sacrificed on our behalf. We praise God that the Christ was afflicted beyond measure. He persevered through that to bring us a life of being able to follow and know the Lord. Of course, we said that our sin is not automatically like we don't become perfect we still struggle with it we declared we're justified the lord says i cast your sin away but now we live a life of sanctification of slowly growing and and becoming obedient 
So I have a question for you. Do you desire to learn the good judgments and knowledge of the Lord? Do you desire to grow and walk in obedience that you would not sin anymore? Then, as we've heard, be prepared. The Lord may use affliction to teach you that. In Psalm 119, verse 65, it says this. This is a psalmist writing. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He, the psalmist, asked the Lord to teach him good judgment and knowledge, trusting in the commands of the Lord. And how did the Lord answer? By bringing affliction. That through the affliction he would learn, obedient, not to go astray and to keep your word and to keep his statutes. By bringing the Lord's judgment on the Israelites, he cleansed the nation of those who rebelled against the Lord and taught them obedience, that it was a nation sanctified and ready to follow him. He will do the same in our lives. And though it is hard, I dare say we will always come out the other side of our affliction with deeper faith, greater love, and a joy to know the Lord that his sovereign and good purposes for us are much greater than the desire that we would have to receive those things without the hard thing, hard parts, without the affliction. But God's ways are higher and better and more wonderful for us. And so that brings me to the final point, that he is sovereign over all of this to bring himself glory in his people and in his works. Consider in Deuteronomy chapter 2, how we have seen the Lord sovereignly guiding all of these nations. In verse 5, it says, I, that God, have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Verse 9, I have given Ah to the people of Lot for a possession. 19, I have given Ammon to the sons of Lot for a possession. Verse 21, the Lord destroyed the Rephaim before the Ammonites. Verse 22, for the people of Esau, the Lord destroyed the Horites. Verse 24, I have given into your hand, Sion. Who is doing all of this? Who is bringing nations into other pieces of land and dispelling other nations from the land? Who is bringing the victory over these different nations? It is the Lord, always. Yes, he's using these people, of course, but in every single way, the Lord is sovereign to complete his purposes in the land by guiding the nations towards us. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the depths. And here we've seen the pattern of how the Lord works in the nations. And practically, what does that look like now for the Israelites battling against King Sihon? 
verse 30, but Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So, what do we make of that? The Lord actively going in and hardening the heart of a king who then did not let the nation go through, so the nation came in and destroyed him. That is, that is a difficult thing to wrap our heads around. The Lord bringing other nations to come and conquer other nations. When we read of this in, in Numbers, because Deuteronomy is a retelling of the story, right? In Numbers, it actually doesn't say that the Lord hardened Sion's spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't say how the Lord actively worked there. It just says, but Sion would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So they went in and, and took it. This is only something that's been added in Deuteronomy. I wonder if that is because the Israelites didn't realize what the Lord was, exactly how the Lord was working at that time. The Lord said, go take the land. So they went and asked, as, as nations would, can we enter safely through your land? And King Zion said, no. So then King Zion grabs his army, comes to fight the Israelites, and they destroy him. But the point is, we don't actually, we don't, we don't have a reason. Like, we're not told here, the Lord hardened Sion's spirit because Sion was really evil, or because the Israelites needed the land, or because X, Y, Z. We're not given a reason. It just says, the Lord hardened his spirit, and so we took the land. And I think some things in the way that the Lord works and in his sovereignty, although it's good for us to search the scriptures, there are some things that are secret to the Lord, and we trust him in that. Remember we said the Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If the Lord wants to take the land or harden someone's heart, he, because he is good and right and just in all of his ways, then we trust that he's good and right and just to do that. Even if we find it difficult to, to in ourselves, understand or justify what's going on. A similar thing happened to Pharaoh when the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. In Romans 9, it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I, God, have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We are, uh, we are, and the Lord is, number one, primarily concerned about the proclamation, the declaration, the recognition of his glory in all the universe, by all creatures. In Psalm 135. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. 136. The steadfast love endures forever. 
136 verse 19. And just before then, he says, He killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here is a mighty reason why we can trust him. When we see him sovereignly guiding the nations and hardening hearts, doing things which are difficult for us to comprehend. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This is something that we must hold on to and trust. In the middle of our sanctification and our trials, in the middle of seeing the Lord working in the nations where where we don't fully understand what's going on, we just got to keep coming back to the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And we know that beyond the shadow of a doubt because he gave his life for us. Because he suffered unto death on the cross. We can know for sure his love does endure. And so we trust him in that. And we know that all things are worked out for his glory because his steadfast love endures forever. If, the Lord ple- if it pleased the Lord to harden Sion's spirit so the Israelites could defeat him and settle in the land, then he's free to do so because he's God. It's right for him to do so because he's God. It's something that has come out of his goodness. It is for the good of his people and it will bring him glory. So we trust his ways because we trust him. We know that in all of this, and especially in the sanctification of the Israelites. This is coming out of the Lord's passion and desire for his own wonderful character, for his own glory that is taken and ruined by sin. Of course, he is still glorious, but on the earth, our sin, cosmic treason. When Moses interceded, for the Israelites, after the Israelites had rebelled against the Lord, coming away from the promised land. He prays to the Lord words back to him that the Lord had first declared to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God cannot bear and accept the sin of this earth because he is glorious and because he is wonderful, because he's good. Therefore, He will sovereignly work among the nations to destroy that which is opposed to his purposes. He will sovereignly work in our lives to bring us through affliction, to cleanse us of sin, and to bring him glory in that. Because the more that he sanctifies us and we see his good purposes, the more we end up praising him for that, which is good and right, both for us because it's what we're created to do and brings us much joy and also for him because his glory is declared as is his one aim in this universe. Hebrews 12 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but 
Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises everyone whom he receives as his son. He disciplines us for our good, it says, that we may share in his holiness. In all of his purposes, he is showing his steadfast love. He is declaring his glory. He is working in our trials and in the nations to accomplish his purposes. And he's so good. And we trust him and we know him. And two things to lead us in our lives practically as we think about sanctification in our own lives in in this fight and battle against sin. right? It says in the New Testament, it says, put to death the flesh, right? So we, we know, we gotta, we, and, and because we're concerned about the glory of the Lord, we want to be on about killing and removing sin in our lives. We've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 2, two ways today that the Lord does this. He does this through our sanctification, leading us through trials to cleanse us of our sin. And he also does this by commanding us, as he did to go and take the land of King Sion, who was there against the purposes of the Lord, to go in and actively wage war against it. And I think, no, definitely, we ought to be both trusting as we've heard, but also saying, Lord, where, 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 where is sin in my life? I want to actively wage war against this. Teach me your good judgments and knowledge, Lord, so that I might go and display your glory in my life, so that I might be sanctified and honour you as well. Let us be so concerned for the glory of the Lord personally in our own lives that we would do all that we can to kill sin and not make room for the flesh. In this you rejoice, our salvation to be revealed, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us do all that we can to trust God until the end, that in every way that he acts sovereignly over the earth, so we can praise him for that, so we can seek to honour him in our lives, so that we can know and trust and hold firm in our trials. This is not pointless. The Lord has got purposes in this. We can know him. He will comfort us. He will enable us then later on to minister to others because of the trials that we've been through. And as he sanctifies us all throughout our lives, we can have, hold truly onto this promise in, one, in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So may we persevere for the glory of the Lord. Amen. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you work in our lives to sanctify us. Thank you that you work in the nation sovereignly because your steadfast love endures forever and for the sake of your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you do whatever you please and that because you are good and righteous, we trust that and we know you. Thank you, you revealed yourself to us. And Lord, I ask that you would give us such a zeal for your glory that we would go into our lives to defeat and to kill sin. Lord, that we would trust you as you lead us to affliction and that we would rejoice at the honour that you are given in the way that you sanctify us and work sovereignly in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.